Hey guys, how's it going? Good. I'm doing well. You know, I, I decided, you know, 30 years old and praying, God, will you just, will you bless me? Will you just come through for me in this way? And so I'm, I'm, I'm tried growing a beard, right? And there's a lot of reasons why, you know, mostly I just want my dad to want to hang out with me, you know? And so it's almost, I, it has to be the beard, right? This is the only thing that's missing. So anyway, I'm driving my seven-year-old daughter to school this morning. I'm driving her to school. My seven-year-old is funny. And I say, hey, Briar, what do you think about daddy's beard? She goes, it's bad. I go, it's bad. Why is it bad? She goes, it's just bad. And I go, well, who else thinks that? And she says, everybody, they're all talking about it. <laughs> Dude, you are savage, man. Anyway, so I got bullied by a seven-year-old girl today. Oh. Jesus, thank you so much for laughter. Thank you so much for kids. Um, we pray for all the kids that we have in our kids' wing this morning, Lord, or this evening. I pray that, um, that the Bible stories that get shared with them tonight would just stick with them and that they would remember the application and remember what you did in the lives of people in the past and that you're the same God yesterday, today, and forever and that you're the same God who will come through for them in their life. And we pray for the middle schoolers who are meeting tonight, Lord. I just pray that as Max shares with them, that um, they would begin to develop their own walk with you and get to know you individually as King and Savior, God and friend. And so thank you for this evening, Lord, as we look into your word. May you speak to us too. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So um, we're doing a cool thing right now where for a month, Everyone who's on the teaching rotation gets to just grab a psalm, whatever psalm they want to grab before we head into 1 Corinthians in a few weeks. And so uh, today, I, I grabbed this psalm. I think it's a really cool one because the idea is this. Every year on the fourth day of the Feast of Booths, the, the, the nation of is Israel would sing this song. And so it's Psalm chapter 50 if you want to turn there. And it's kind of an interesting song to all sing together because the idea is this. We are God's people in a covenant relationship with him. This would be the Israelites. We're in a covenant relationship with Yahweh, our God. And over this last year, since the last time we've met, or maybe for a long time, you found your relationship with God has become a grind. Like you're doing everything right, but it's become mechanical, this, this relationship that you have with God has become mechanical and you've missed the relationship with God that's, that's gone away. It's kind of like if, if your wife is mad at you for something you've done and rightfully so and you go and buy her flowers and you just deliver the flowers because you know that's what you do and she's mad but you don't address the problems or change anything. Or, is that gonna fix the problem? No, you're gonna end up buying more flowers, right? So that has happened. That's one side. The other thing that is addressed in this psalm is Maybe something has happened with your walk where it's become disingenuous. And so now you know all the right lingo, you know the Christianese, you've got all the verbiage, you know all the right things to say, but your life isn't reflecting it at all. And so this psalm would be an annual opportunity for the Israelites to examine themselves, ask God, is that what's going on in my life? And then renew their covenant relationship with him and say, okay, I don't want to do that anymore, God restore the relationship in me that we had. So it's a cool psalm. Um, I'm super excited to look at it with you tonight. So we'll be in Psalm chapter 50. 
And Psalm 50 starts like this, a psalm of Asaph, the mighty one, God, the Lord. In the Hebrew there, it's just, it's three words, El Elohim Yahweh. It's three words for God. So it's God, God, God. So I think that's right. So who's talking? God is. El Elohim Yahweh, God, God, God. It's God, it's the God above all gods, and it's the personal God that met with Moses and has met with Abraham and has been throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Mentioned 6,000 times, this is the God addressing the Israelites. So the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. So the earth, from the rising of the sun to its setting, so the east to the west, this is everybody. So God, overall, has summoned everybody. Verse two, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. So if you're an Israelite and this is the first time you're hearing this song, it's God, the mighty God. This is our personal God, Yahweh, who brought us out of Egypt, who provided for us. This is our God. Oh, he comes like a mighty tempest. He's not keeping silent anymore. He's coming out of Zion, perfection of beauty. He's coming to judge us. Shoot. Like, darn it. Well, why is he coming to judge? Why is he coming to judge his people? Why is this such an important thing for the Israelites that they would make it something that annually they read? Because God says all, he's summoning all the nations to watch this thing. You know, for the Israelites, a big thing with the Lord is when you're looking at the laws he would set in place, especially in Exodus, it was, I want the other nations to see how you treat people so that they'll come to know me as God. That the way that you represent me to other people really, really matters. And it's the same for you and for me, that if you profess yourself to be a Christian, the eyes of those around you are on you, at your work or in your family. Wherever you go, if you profess yourself to be a Christian, they're gonna watch how you deal with tragedy, how you deal with frustration, difficulty, when there's trauma, when there's things going on in your life that are out of your control, they're gonna see, okay, let's see how he handles it. Does he, he or she have something that I don't? Because they claim that they do. Let's see it walked out. So in Numbers, you have this circumstance where over and over again, the Israelites have been complaining and murmuring and grumbling about all of their circumstances, every single day. And it gets super heated at points, but every, consistently God will provide for them every morning and every night. Well, right now they're in a situation where there's no water. And so this is Numbers 20, verses seven through 12. There's no water, they're getting frustrated. And so Moses and Aaron, they go to God and say, okay, God, what do you want us to do? In verse seven of Numbers 20, it says, and Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. So Moses has the staff, which has been given to him from God. 
It's the staff that Moses held up and the Red Sea parted. It, it's kind of like a judge's gavel, that a judge and his gavel, the gavel means nothing in practice, right? It's just a piece of wood. But in that gavel is all of the authority invested in him from the state and from the people who've elected him. So for Moses, this staff is all the authority of Yahweh. When he's doing something with the staff, consistently, it's Yahweh has decided this is what's going to happen. So he's representing Yahweh directly when he's using the staff. God says, take the staff, take the gavel, bring it before the people. And what God said is, you're going to tell the rock to give them water, and it will give them all water. Well, here's what happens in verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given them. So he gets out there and there's this mumbling and there's a grumbling and there's this, you're gonna let us die. And this, I knew that this would happen. And he's ticked. He's so ticked, it's kind of like, I've got to hit something. And so he gets out there and he addresses them angrily. God says, go out there and speak to the rock. He didn't say go out there and chastise and rebuke the people, but he goes out there. He's frustrated with them. He strikes the rock. He's, he's misrepresenting God in that moment. God told them, to go out there and provide for the people, and they go out there frustrated and angry, call them names, hits the rock, and God, in his grace and mercy, still provides the water. But Moses, you misrepresented me, and so you're gonna miss out on all that I had for you. So for our God, it's super important that his people represent him well. There's a track record of that, that God, just like we talked about on Sunday, He's doing things for his name that people would look at him and go, that's a good God. I want to follow him. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and mercy. He's one we can come to in our time of need. Moses misrepresented that. And the Israelites annually would say, am I misrepresenting that God right now? And so all the nations are looking, all the people are looking, and God is going to address two things that are happening in the Israelites. One, God wants his people to be people of grateful worship, not mechanically serving. Uh, it's a drag. It's a grind. It's a job to worship God. And he wants people who will follow him in true obedience. And so let's look at that. God says in verse five, Psalm 50, gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I love that. Even when God is frustrated with his people, hey, we're gonna get everyone to come and see, and I'm gonna rebuke you. I'm gonna ask you to change things. God shares, I'm your God. I am not just I'm God, so you better listen to me. I'm your God. I want what's best for you. I don't want you to do these things because I need it. I want you to do these things because you need it. And that's part of the issue with the Israelites' hearts is they think God needs it. Because watch what God says in verse eight. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you, 
Your burnt offerings are continually before me. It's not because you're doing the right things wrong that I'm rebuking you. It's not that you've, you've mis mistaken a step or messed up the formula that I'm confronting you. Verse nine, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. God's saying, do you think that I need these offerings from you? That I'm lacking them? When I command that you bring me sacrifices, do you think that I'm doing it because I, I need these? I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I'm not lacking in anything. Verse 11, I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So the Israelites, something that could happen to them is maybe they look at the other nations and they see how the other nations deal with their gods that we have to supplement things for our gods. We need to help our God. We need to give our God what he needs so he can come through for us. And God is saying, that's not how I operate at all. Everything in the world in its fullness is mine. That's not why you're doing that. But for the Israelites, some of them, they can begin to have this mechanical situation with the Lord where this is what we do and we're just gonna do it and they miss out completely on the relationship with their God. And so Jesus in Luke 15, he, he shares a parable of two brothers. And it's super familiar, you guys know it. There's two brothers, one, the younger brother comes to his dad and says, dad, I want my inheritance. Which, when do you get your inheritance from your dad? When he dies. So super cruel thing to say. There's, I, I've lost my inheritance because the beard comment earlier, I'm aware of it. But what he's communicating to his dad is, I want your stuff, I don't want you. In fact, it would be better for me if you were dead because then I could just get your stuff and we'd get this whole awkward conversation and be out of the way. He wants the things of the, of the father and he's gonna go and do it with it, whatever he wants. And so that father complies, the younger brother takes all of the, that inheritance and goes and squanders it. He lives crazily. He ends up the next time we see him in a pig pen feeding pigs which is a, a huge moment for a reader to notice this brother's now outside of covenantal relationship with God. That's what you and I are supposed to see. It's not just that he's run his life into the gutter. It's that he's outside covenant relationship with the Lord. He's dealing with unclean things, something that the Israelites were not supposed to be dealing with. He's intimately involved with them. He's feeding them. He's their caretaker. So that's something you and I are supposed to notice. And so he decides one day he's starving and he goes, at least my dad's servants they always had full bellies. So I, I'm gonna go home. And I know because I've wasted my inheritance, I've treated my dad poorly, I talked to him in the worst ways, I've done everything wrong. I'm outside covenantal relationship with God. I'm gonna come home and I know I can't be a son anymore, but maybe I could be a servant. And so he goes home and he's rehearsing the entire way what he's gonna say to his dad. Dad, I know you can't, but please maybe. And he's just rehearsing, rehearsing, rehearsing. And the Bible says that when the father sees his son coming around the corner, he runs to him, grabs him, and throws him a party. And so that's the, the prodigal son story. We all know that story super well. We're familiar with it. But there's another brother that's also devoted a lot of that parable time to him. The other brother, the older brother, 
He's been at home that entire period of time. He's been working on the farm. He's been caring for everything. He hears this party going on at the house. And when he comes up to the house, a servant comes out and says, hey, you gotta come in. We're throwing this rager. It is awesome. Dad killed the goat or the fatted calf. We're having such a good time. This is the best party we're ever gonna have. And he goes, why are you having it? He goes, oh, your brother's home. And so he becomes angry. He gets really, really angry. He decides, I'm not gonna go in. So the father comes out to him and what the brother says is this. When the dad comes out, the older brother says, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. He's saying, dad, I worked for you. I slaved for you and I never got my thing. And so the Bible's saying, both of these brothers are wrong. Both of these brothers are wrong. We we give a lot of heat to the prodigal son, but he's got two bad sons. And the other one, the older brother, he's not living outside a covenantal relationship with God, but his relationship with his father has become mechanical. I'm gonna do the formula, and he's missed the heart of the father. And that other brother attitude, that older brother attitude is something that can seep into every single one of us as a believer, as someone who's in covenant relationship with God, where maybe you feel like you're doing all the right things. Come to church. I bring my kids to church every single week. We went to the marriage conference. I invested all this time, God. You need to start coming through for me now. It's a job. I came to the marriage conference. I brought my kids to church. How come they're not doing well? How come, how come they're exploring things in their spirituality that aren't good to explore? How come they're hanging out with their friends and going through these? God, you owe me. And then you look at someone who you know hasn't been living a good life and they start coming to church and their whole family becomes regenerated because they meet Jesus as their savior and their whole family turns a leaf and you can't even be happy for them because you go, he doesn't deserve it. He didn't put in the work. He didn't put in the time. Do you see how that can happen? That it can become something where you know that's in you because it becomes difficult to be grateful in your praise to God for when other people get saved and when things happen to you because you deserved more than them and you deserved what you got because it's a job. You know, have you ever been working a hard job? Like maybe you've been, I did this for a summer, you post hole dug for a fence. It's the worst job ever, especially in really rooted areas with poison oak, super fun. So you're going at it and then you get that paycheck and you get that paycheck and you look at it, you're never like, oh, wow, man, these guys, they're so good to me. I can't believe it. No, you always look at it and you go, how much went to taxes? Is this, is this one of more to come or is this it, right? You never are like, yeah, it's always like, shoot. I feel like I should have got more. That can happen in our relationship with the Lord when we start to treat it like it's a job. Okay, if I do these things, then God has to come through for me in these ways. It becomes mechanical and you miss the heart of God. And it's something that can easily slip into every single one of us. And so you notice that if you, get, if you find yourself getting easily angered when you see other people getting blessed and God moving in their lives and people coming to meet Jesus and being regenerated with their family and in their relationships, And you can also see it if you find that your relationship with God is a grind. God, I've been serving you. I've been slaving for you. It's work, but your relationship with God is is missing. 
And so God in here, he's saying, I don't need your work. I don't need you to do something for me. This Psalm is saying, it's not that you didn't do enough, it's that you made it about what you do. You made it about your sacrifices. You made it about you making sure you did everything the right way so that God has to do something for you in return. That's not it, that's not what God wants. We don't gather and sing songs because God needs us to. Like, like God needs that from us. We don't give of our, our money because God needs it from us. You gotta say, no, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. That's not it at all. It's in song and in giving, we're supposed to be acknowledging our dependence on Jesus. That's what it is. That it's in our dependency that you start to re-become a grateful person. Like God says right here in verse 14, if you offer a sacrifice to God of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. That's what God wants. God wants grateful, thanksgiving people. You become a person of gratitude when you start to recognize your dependence on Jesus. When we get together and we sing songs of God has redeemed me and pulled me from something that I could not save myself from. It's supposed to make us recognize that and go, Jesus, thank you so much. It's only by the blood of Jesus I'm saved. And now I get to look forward to the hope of heaven. I get to look forward to days where there won't be any more pain because of the work you did, not because of the work I did. God, I'm so grateful for that. And when we give of our money, we're supposed to say, God, I know that I can't fix everything on our own. If a problem can be solved with money, it must not be that big of a problem, right? Because the biggest problems in your lives are the ones you can't buy your way out of. Issues with your kids, issues with your wives, issues in relationship. God, okay, I, I'm dependent on you. It's in those moments where you, you recognize, God, I'm, I'm fully dependent on you. God, fix this. And when God comes through for you, you go, Jesus, thank you so much for fixing that. Thank you so much for helping me recognize where I was wrong in that and forgiving that person. Jesus, thank you. And it causes us to be a, a grateful people. So that's the first thing. God wants grateful worship from his people. And the second thing is he wants true obedience. So look at verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or to take my covenant on your lips? So the wicked here is not the other nations. It's not the pagans living outside of covenantal relationship. God is saying the wicked in this situation are those who know their Bible super well. Those who know scripture, can recite scripture, who knows when all the feasts fall and what order they come in and what psalm we're gonna sing and they know it by heart. They don't need their hymnal. They don't need lyrics. They know it all. But there's something wrong in their heart. Their, their walk is not representing what they're talking about. They're wicked. In verse 17, for you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. So you know God's laws. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't testify falsely against your neighbor. But then you live that way. You live as an adulterer. You live as a thief. You live as a slanderer. And so here's a really important question for you and me. Does God hate adulterers? So John chapter three, you have Jesus come into this city and Jesus decides he's gonna sit by a well and he sends all his disciples off. And in this city, there's a ton of people. 
You got people doing pretty well. You have people working on their marriages. You have people who are struggling with raising their kids. You have people who are raising their kids really well. You have people who are killing it at their marriage. You've got all this, this giant group of people, but there's one person in particular Jesus wants to meet first. And this woman comes to the well, and it's the hot, hottest time of the day. If you're gonna go to a well in that time, you go in early morning when it's not hot, you've gotta lift all this water out of this well by buckets. It's a pain. You don't wanna do that in the, the middle of the day. And this woman comes up and she sees a man standing at the well. She's probably thinking, dang it, man, I thought I was gonna miss the crowds. For some reason, she doesn't wanna be with everyone else because she's been outcast from society. She comes up and Jesus engages her in conversation. And during that conversation, Jesus says, hey, go get your husband and we'll, have, we'll continue the convo. And she goes, oh, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right, you don't have a husband. That's a good answer. Because you've had five husbands and the dude that you're currently living with and using sex to pay for rent, he's not your husband either. That was, that was a great answer. Jesus is like, there's a, a lightheartedness to their conversation. And then after their conversation is done, the woman goes into the city and she's the one that brings the rest of the town after Jesus says, you have to come and meet this man who knew everything about me, who knew my entire past, who knew everything I've been through. And he still sees value in me and beauty in me. And he wanted me. He wanted to have a conversation with me. He wanted me to know the fullness of life and to, that's our God. So does God hate adulterers? No way. Does God hate thieves? Well, in Luke chapter 19, you have a guy named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is a tax collector for Rome. And so his job would be, Rome would say, from every citizen, you need to get $4,000 from them. And so every household. And so he would go to every household and tell them, I need $6,000 from you. And from you with a nice household, I need $8,000 from you. And anything that he can return to Rome, anything in excess of that, he got to keep. Do you know the difference between a common burglar and an IRS agent? I couldn't figure it out either. And so you have, a, you have an extortioner, you have a thief, you have someone who's hated in his community, and that's Zacchaeus. And so Jesus is coming to town, Zacchaeus hears about it, and Zacchaeus goes, I just wanna see what this guy looks like. I've heard so many things about him. He climbs in this tree. And he looks at the, over the horizon and crowds are coming. It's all loud. And then he sees Jesus. And for a moment, Jesus locks eyes with Zacchaeus. And you can almost just think that the second of dread, like, oh, he sees me. He's going to call me out. He knows that I'm a sinner. He knows I've taken advantage of all of these Jews, all of these God's people, God's covenant people. I've extorted them. And that's how I've raised to the high ranks that I have. But Jesus goes, Zacchaeus. He's like, oh man. He goes, I'm coming to your house tonight. And everyone else in the crowd is ticked. Because they go, he, Jesus must not know who that guy is. And so Jesus goes and he sits with Zacchaeus. He shares a meal with Zacchaeus. And then something amazing happens. Everything with Zacchaeus changes. There's something happens when he meets Jesus and spends time with Jesus, he becomes a regenerated human being and every single aspect of his life changes. His home life changes. He tells Jesus he's gonna give away half of all that he has. If your spouse came home today and half of all that you own was given to charity, would they notice? You own two vehicles, one of them is gone. Half of all of it's in your cupboards is gone. Your bank account, your IRA is split in half and gone, is there gonna be a conversation? 
It's gonna change the way you do vacation. It's gonna change who you have over. It's gonna change literally everything about your home life. Everything about your home is just drastically changed. So for Zacchaeus, he meets Jesus, his home life changes. The things that his kids and his wife do participate in, who they have over, what they watch, what they talk about, everything at home has changed, but it doesn't stop there. His professional life changes. He's not gonna extort people anymore. He can't operate that way. He can't do business the same. When he meets Jesus, he has to change the way he does business. And in that line of work, he probably is gonna have to change jobs. But he tells Jesus in, what, in all these changes he's going to make, that meeting with Jesus was so substantial, I'm willing to change jobs over it. It doesn't matter. So his home life changes, his professional life changes, and his social life changes. No longer are people opportunities to extort or to target or to find their weak spot or how much income they make. Now he's looking at opportunities to give back to people and be generous. Everything for this man has changed because he met Jesus. And that's how it's supposed to be for every single one of us. As we become regenerated human beings by meeting with Jesus, our personal life, our professional life, and our social life needs to change. What happens with these Israelites is God is saying, you've got one life when you're at church and you've got another life when you're at home. You got one life when you're at church and you're singing songs and you've got another life when you're at your work. You have one life when you're at church and you're taking communion and you've got another life when you're dealing socially with your friends. And it's wicked. It's not right. That's what God is saying. And so, no, God does not hate the adulterer. God does not hate the thief. What he hates is people who knows they're in covenant relationship with God, knows that this is wrong and says, you know what, I'm gonna do it anyway. Or I'm gonna encourage my friends to do it and just associate with them and laugh and, ah, oh, it's fine, it's all good. God said, no, that's wicked, that's wrong. And in verse 21, this is what God says about it because maybe the argument is this. Well, you know what? There's no other way for me to run my business and for it to be successful. You know, there's no other way for me to do things at home and for it to work. There's no other way for me to deal with my friends and for everything to be fine. And you know what? God must be fine with it because if he wasn't, he would have smacked me by now. I've been doing this forever. I've been doing this before I was saved. I'm doing this after I'm saved. It must be fine. God must be cool with it. Verse 21 is God's response to that. These things you have done, and I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charges before you. God is saying, you think just because I haven't come and smacked you upside the head like a toddler, not that we do that. <laughs> Don't know where your household is with that. You think because I haven't come and spanked you that I'm okay with all of your behavior and the way you've been acting. No way. You've been laying up charges for yourself and you know what? Your sin is gonna find you out. In this moment, God is saying, now I rebuke you and I'm gonna lay the charge before you. God, just, God doesn't want just lip service from his people. He wants people who will follow him faithfully in obedience. It's one thing to talk the talk and it's another thing to walk it out. And so how do you keep from doing that? How do you keep from being someone who is a lip service-y kind of person and miss out on, on the life that we're supposed to be walking with? Don't be verse 17. Verse 17 says, you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. That discipline word is it's training of mind and conscience through scripture. One thing that you and I are supposed to be doing is faithfully and diligently seeking God in Scripture, and he's going to start confronting our conscience and confronting our mind and training us in that as we go through our day, that there will be things that start to bother you now. Now, I shouldn't laugh at that stuff. 
I shouldn't encourage him in that anymore. It didn't used to bother you. It didn't used to be an issue, but all of a sudden, it's like having a rock in your boot. And one day you're gonna have to stop and pull out the rock and look at it and go, is this really what God wants for me? And so the psalm ends in verse 22 and 23. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Verse 23, the one who offers thanksgiving at his, as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. What God wants for his people is for them to remember their dependency upon him. For you and me, we're supposed to be people who remember, remember and reflect on our dependency upon Jesus and order our life that way. If you order your life that way, God, I, I'm gonna depend on you in this. I cannot run my business this way anymore and be a Christian. I call myself a Christian because that's not true. You can be a Christian and still live crazy life and you'll miss out on the things that God has for you. But I cannot live my life this way and experience the fullness of all that you have for me. I'm gonna be living wickedly outside of how you want me to live. Okay, God, I'm not gonna run my business this way anymore. I'm completely dependent on you to do, either do something or you're gonna cause this business to fail and you'll do something else in my life. And in those moments, I'm gonna see you come through for me and it's gonna cause me to be a grateful person. Okay, God, I can't run my marriage this way. God, I'm gonna be dependent on you that you're gonna come through for me in a way that I can't even understand. God, I can't continue to raise my kids this way. I'm gonna be completely dependent on you. God wants people who are dependent upon him. That's who you and I are supposed to always be. And in everything for the believer, it's always supposed to come back to the cross that you and I start there with everything. Okay, Jesus, you took the worst thing, the emblem of sin and shame, the worst thing, you took that and you used it for my good. So right now, I'm gonna trust you with the things in my life that are really hard and really difficult and really scary, and if you could even use the cross for my good, maybe you can use this thing for my good too. And if you have eyes that are looking for things like that, in your life daily, you're gonna find yourself being a more grateful person as you see Jesus come alive in your life. If you give Jesus the opportunity to deliver you, to come through for you, I will show the salvation of God. God will show himself to prove himself to be working and active in your life and he will come through for you in ways that you don't expect. The nation of Israel, as they stood in front of the Red Sea, not one of them thought that there would be two walls of water standing on either side of them and they'd get to walk through. But here's the amazing thing. As the two walls of water were standing on either side of them, all the hundreds of thousands of Israelites got to walk through. The people like Moses, who was like, wow, God really showed himself again this time. Plague after plague, dang, this is so cool. You got that guy walking through the Red Sea, but you also have the guy walking through the Red Sea with his cart and his family going, oh my gosh, I'm gonna die. You've got both of those people because for you and for me and for the, this this God that we follow, the God the Israelites follow, it's not about the quality of your and my faith, but it's about the object of our faith. It's about Jesus. And when you and I can remember that daily and recognize it's my dependency on Jesus that's gonna get me through this. Not the quality of my faith, how well I'm doing, how well I offer sacrifices, how well I recite words, What's gonna get me through this is my dependency on Jesus. You're really gonna see Jesus come alive in your life, at your professional life, and with your marriages and your relationships. You'll see him come alive. You just have to give him the opportunity and say, okay, Jesus, I'm depending on you in this.
So Jesus, as we read Psalm 50 and we are tasked with self-reflection and wondering, God, have I been in covenant relationship with you, but I need to renew my covenant relationship with you. If I need to fix things in my relationship with you, God, empower us today to choose to be more dependent on you, to come to you, to seek you in scripture, to seek you in prayer, to approach your throne in the ark the throne of grace in our time of need and ask you to come through for us. And then Jesus, may you give us eyes to see how you will work all things together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Jesus, thank you for the work that you did on the cross, that you conquered sin and death in the way that we could not so that we could turn to you, depend on you and trust you as our king, our savior, our God and our friend. Thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.